This is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello and welcome back to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today is a landmark episode. It is episode 40. And I can't actually believe we've hit another, um, I was about to say decade then, uh, but another, wait, well, I suppose it is another decade of of episodes. But anyway, uh, we've hit 40. And uh, yeah, so thank you guys for sticking with me and my potty mouth. Today I am talking to Joseph Alexander all about how to deliver extra value, how a publishing rebellion led him to starting what is now a 600,000 plus sales machine, and he's still going, and why uh, translations might need to be in your not too distant future. But first to last week's question, do you write short stories or flash fiction? Melissa Green on Twitter said, in answer to this week's rebel question, yes, I write short stories and longer works. Edwin Downward said, in answer to your question, I have only written short fiction in response to a challenge. 75% of these have been forum type challenges and 25% have been... I need to... uh, (laughs) have been I need to fill out this piece of backstory challenge. Only one has been polished to the point it could be published, which is which I did to put it out there as a free teaser into my writing style and the universe I write in. So I, I had a little bit of a chat with Edwin about this because I would um, love to be able to uh, write shorts in my universe. And I am trying. I have uh, two or three shorts, one, one from... Amir's point of view, one from Kato's point of view, and an epilogue, uh, an extra bonus epilogue at the end of Keepers that I'm trying to um, write. And I haven't quite got any of them right yet. I, I really struggle, as I mentioned in last week's episode, to write anything that doesn't turn into a fucking novel. Uh, but yes, I will persist nonetheless. Michael Nasberg said, I'm writing some short stories. It's always been my dream to get published in Analog or Asimov's. And it's a nice way to take a break from novel novel writing while waiting to hear back from beta readers. So it's interesting um, that you mentioned those. I actually purchased some of those uh, magazines um, about a year ago. I've got a box of them. I, I just ordered a box of like random back Uh, catalogue ones because as I mentioned last week I keep forgetting what I've told you and what I haven't uh, I really 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 want to write more short stories and so I brought them because it was a little desire of mine one day to potentially submit to them uh, with the hope that I may or may not well hopefully (laughs) get accepted but I think that's a long way off seeing as I can't seem to write a fucking short story Shalina Valmon said, I'm excited for this episode. She's talking about last week's, uh, about the short stories. I was just asking about what to do with short fiction in another group. Well, I hope it helped and I hope you feel like you now know what to do. Jasmine Plate said, I do write short stories and flash fiction. Love drabbles. The puzzle of coming in at exactly 100 words without adding in extraneous fluff is utterly delicious. And I couldn't agree more with you. I used to do a a weekly challenge of writing a short story in 99 words, precisely not one more, not one less. 
um, and that was through Charlie Mills and she has a website I think that's called Car Carrot Ranch uh, which yeah go check it out this week's question is what language would you most like your book translated into I think for me probably Chinese and I know obviously there are various uh, languages in China uh, but I think that it's a huge market and um, I would love to be able to get my books uh, over there and um, yes if you're an agent and you like non-fiction or young adult fiction <laughs> tap me up um, okay the book recommendation of the week is Wild Seed by Octavia Butler I was recommended this by Tango Jordan and um, he actually uh, kindly with Julie uh, sent me a copy so thank you very much guys and you're absolutely right I am loving it um, I think I think I'm loving it more so because I read fifth season which was which is by NK Jemison um, just before reading this so and basically Octavia inspired and is one of her inspirations and I can really see the comparisons in the voice and sort of just it just echoes of this fifth season which I love so I I would have been interested to see what I thought of Wild Seed if I hadn't read fifth season um but either way loving it and of course I will leave links in the show notes Okay, on to my personal update for the week. Well, I did prep my audio booth. I have now primed it. It is fully painted and uh, it is ready and waiting to be uh, well nailed, hammered, drilled together. Um, but I won't be able to do that until we have our carpet installed, which is coming on the 15th of July. And I tell you, I could not be more excited. I um, have not been able to have my bookcase, as I mentioned last week, which means as of recording this, and I'm recording it on Friday the 10th of July, we only have five days. And I am seriously excited to get my books back. I just want to roll around in them and sniff them. And anyway, I'm going to stop sounding weird. Uh, in it, for the rest of the week, this week has been a bit of a weird, forgetful week. I've been exhausted. I can't really explain it I don't really know why uh, well uh, I mean I do obviously know why uh, I have been burning for far too long I obviously had the double launch for the anatomy of prose textbook and workbook I have moved house we've been in lockdown so I've been parenting 24-7 while still trying to run a business um you know keep going do all the things that I'm doing and I'm fucked. I'm absolutely exhausted. I'm waking up exhausted. I'm going, I'm, and then wide awake at night. Um, I'm just knackered. And I think that's probably why I've been quite forgetful this week. I'm just, I've hit a wall and I need to stop and rest. And obviously when we moved in, we then did like renovations. So it was all go then as well. Suffice to say, I wouldn't change any of it. <laughs> Like, I'm all extremely grateful for everything that's happened. Uh, I just think I need to slow down a bit. Uh, so what else did I do this week? Well, I finally, finally worked on Trey. This is the book that has killed me twice and I've not been able to finish it. And I really, really feel this time that um, if I don't finish it, I may never be able to finish it. This is the third attempt at trying to do it. And it's in a we're in a bit of a, a showdown, a, a fight to the death. It feels 
and um, I don't want to lose this time. So yes, I have been working on that and it's extremely slow going, but I am getting there and I might, uh, I, I, I hope that in a week, you know, it, I hope the slowness is just about gaining pace again because I haven't worked on it for so long and not because it's going to be this fucking painful the whole way through because, oh my God, I just need a break from it being painful. I have also uh, worked on the Anatomy of Prose course, which I am aiming to have launched around the beginning of September and um, also recorded a ton of podcasts. That's probably why you, you can hear a little crackle um, in my throat, which also might be the exhaustion. But uh, yeah, so it's been a really busy week this week. And what will I do next week? I'm just trying to think, I don't know, more of the same. Work on the course, work on Dre, uh, edit some podcasts. Uh, oh yes, and unpack my office once the carpet comes. Oh my god, you can hear how excited I am. Oh my books, my books are coming back. Anyway, I'm gonna stop being a loser and uh, move very swiftly on to listener rebel of the week. And this week, the listener rebel is Matt Goodall. Matt says, "When I was in high school, I took art for the first three years." During this time, my art teacher took every opportunity to belittle me and tell me that my art was no good, unrealistic, lacking depth, etc. With the exception of one time in those three years, when he told me I had the potential to be the best artist in the school. Of course, he then went right back to telling me my work was unrealistic. Needless to say, this did wonders for my sense of self-worth and belief in my ability. Fortunately, I had books to retreat to. Fast forward to now, I have sev- several. I have self-published three books that I've completed the artwork for myself, and I'm actively working on a further two. I haven't seen that teacher since I left high school, but if I did, I would take exceptional delight in navigating my middle finger. <laughs> Sorry. You can tell I didn't pre-read this because I'm giggling. In navigating my middle finger directly into his line of sight and showing him that my artistic efforts are as valid as anyone else's. I I love that, especially the last lines. Oh, you crack me up, Matt. Um, Brilliant. I I love... um, I love when somebody tells you you can't do something and then you go and do it anyway. I remember when I was in school, I had one particular French teacher who was an absolute bitch and she hated me and I have no idea why uh why why she hated me probably because I was bloody troublemaker but you know um and uh she used to always have me at the front of the class she'd split me up for my friends I'd get detention and back then I really wanted to be an actress and she told me I would never make anything of myself I would never get anywhere Well, the following year, I walked into the class and I didn't have to say anything, which was even more delightful. But my classmates said to her, go on, ask her where she was last term. And um, so she did. The French teacher asked me and I had been on a TV show which was filmed by the BBC in the UK and I'd been the lead actress and she was flabbergasted suffice to say I didn't get any more shit from her for quite some time (laughs) but yeah the thing that I love more than anything is showing somebody 
how fucking little they know when they tell you you can't do something. How dare they? How dare anybody tell you you can't do something? You can do whatever the fuck you want to do. If you are determined enough to do it, you can do it. So yeah, listen to Matt, listen to me. Don't ever, ever let anybody tell you you can't do something. If it's your dream, you go follow it like like a dog with a bone. I'm going to end on a cliche. Okay, if you would like to be a Rebel of the Week, please do send in your story. It can be any kind of rebellion, big, small, or somewhere in between. You can email your Rebel story to rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com or tweet me at rebelauthorpod. And just a note to say we are starting to run low on uh, Rebel stories, so please do send in your your story. And also, if you would like to be anonymous, uh, if you're sort of you're worried about sending your story because you don't want to have your name read out, that's absolutely fine. Happy to keep you anonymous. Um, yes, but please do send them in because they make my week. I know you guys like them. So yes, I, I do need some more Rebel stories. Okay, one new patron this week. Welcome and thank you so much to Bear Kloss. I hope I have said your name right because it's awesome for one. Um, but also I just, yeah, wasn't entirely sure of the pronunciation. So yes, I hope I did. Thank you so much for joining me. I have, so um, Bear has joined at the warrior level, which means Bear gets access to my Slack community chat group, which is very much like Discord for any of you who may not have heard of Slack. So yes, you have got your invite in your inbox, so don't forget to join. Huge thank you to all of my existing patrons. Love you guys. Thank you so much for all of the support. It really does mean a lot to me. And we have got our first... Uh, what's it called? Live Q&A coming up at the end of this month. I've put a poll in Patreon uh, for you to vote on the time. I think I mentioned that last week and now I've had lots of votes. So thank you guys. I will be settling on a time uh, etc very soon. And if you would like to support the show and get access to all of the bonus content, live Q&As, and early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black and that's Sasha with a C and not an S. Okay, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome back to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today I am joined by Joseph Alexander. Joseph has been a guitarist and expert music tutor for over 20 years. His tuition books are published in four languages and have sold over 600,000 copies to widespread critical acclaim. Currently, Joseph is co-writing groundbreaking music methods with Martin Taylor, John, I'm going to butcher this, uh, Patichucci, sorry, (laughs) Jen Larson, (laughs) Levi Clay, um, and lots of other amazing musicians with wonderful names. He is a publisher of 120 music books and his label, Fundamental Changes, is currently accepting manuscripts from a new talented generation of musicians and offers three times the standard royalty rates to educators. Welcome. Hi, you absolutely didn't read that bio before. No, I really didn't. Usually, um, I I will sort of have a go and like cut, cut and trim them, but uh, yeah, no, I didn't. I'm, I'm rolling rolling with the punches today. No, that's fine. <laughs> it's brilliant. What a lovely start. Um, yeah, those guys. That it's it's amazing because 
that like obviously you know if you're not into sort of like jazz or, or this kind of like weird sort of music stuff that that we do they, they kind of mean nothing to anyone but for me like we're working with like my childhood heroes you know we've just signed a guy called mike stern who played with miles davis do you know what i mean like all of these guys have got you know thousands of albums and really important recordings so uh john patacucci as well he's like the the bass player like oh my goodness everything. so, so um, yes welcome so tell everyone a little bit more about you and your journey and how you got to where you are now um yeah uh, I'll, I'll i'll try not to go on too much about it but so i started playing guitar i, I think i saw Jimi hendrix at, i think it was monterey like um you know when i was about eight i was like that yeah that's it that's for me and um badgered my parents for guitar lessons and they like, I started playing classical guitar which was you know it was a guitar in my hands but it wasn't quite the set it on fire and um and and you know burn it smash it up type thing i wanted and i, I switched to electric and was about 13 had lessons i got good and went to music college and music college i just hit this wall i, I went in and i thought i'm pretty good at guitar and, and everything and i just went everyone was so much better than me it was like a real wake-up call and i didn't find myself progressing i thought oh, this is going to be great i'm going to just power through and become this amazing like virtuoso and it didn't happen and I, I was looking at it and I couldn't work out why and then suddenly I realized it's because I've been pulled in all these different directions we're having all of these classes and like one minute I'd be doing like rock guitar technique and I'd be doing jazz theory and I'd be composition and I'd be doing all this like different stuff and also they were teaching us music by all these different musicians and you know like i i didn't i wasn't even experienced to know that like the way miles davis plays jazz is different from the way like alan holdsworth or someone like that plays so i was trying to put all these influences into my music and totally just basically massive burnout i couldn't cope with it and i ended up having a year off and i ended up going up to that was at london college of music then I went up to Leeds College of Music and they just approached it totally differently. It was like, here's your one thing. This is what you're going to be working on and you're going to get good at this and then we'll move on to the next thing. And it was just, life was simplified and good because I had like my, my instrumental teacher, Yanis Pavladis, and he would just teach me like step by step by step by step. And I realized actually that kind of detail into one thing didn't just make you better at that one thing. It made you better at everything because you became a better musician. You were mm. suddenly spread so thin. You were just becoming like a consumer, I suppose, at, at what you were focused on. And then I started teaching guitar. Um, a lot of people do after music college because that's all qualified to do. <laughs> and um, I saw my students coming to me with the same kind of like burnout type, don't know what to focus on issues. And at that time, obviously YouTube was becoming a thing and there were all these books, videos and you know, online lessons and all this sort of stuff. And they were jumping around and they were trying to do the stuff that was like light years ahead of where they should be when they should be really focusing on something else. And I kind of, they were stressed out, they weren't improving. And so I saw that some of my job was just to try and consolidate some of the stuff and, and keep them focused where, you know, I, I felt they, sh they should be as a musician. And 
that experience sort of really stayed with me and it's something I recognize in a lot of people in in any walk of life now you know we were sort of talking a bit about entrepreneurship and things like that before the podcast and you know everyone's like oh, I need to focus on this and this and this and authors particularly should I be oh, working so on my cover should I be working on this should I be working on that and I think in anything that there's this kind of almost there's too much information out there mm-hmm. potentially where there needs to be like a pathway, a step-by-step-by-step thing rather than just, here's everything, deal with it. So anyway, at the time I was writing down um, my guitar lessons that I was teaching my students, but I was kind of archiving them on my computer. So I could help them by saving time in lessons. So I could just hit print and spend loads of time writing things out for them. And that really became what was to become my first guitar book. And somebody pointed out to me about, I think it was Create Space and, and things um oh yeah no so industry be- age there <laughs> yeah pretty much yeah actually but before that i'd sort of somebody said oh that's kind of a cool idea why don't you send that off to a publisher and I, so i did and they came back to me and I, i'd included so many like notated audio examples i wanted to include like loads of dvds with it and they're like this isn't financially viable so then yeah i was told about the create space and i just sort of threw the, the book online with this like terrible shitty cover on it and i, I put up a wordpress site to host the audio and lo and behold, it started selling. So I did another and another and another. And then um, I think I wrote about 14 books in the first year um, and then sort of upgraded the website, got a bit of branding together, kept writing. Then I ran out of things to write about. And then I asked a friend to write like a death metal guitar book. So it's not really my thing. And he did. We split the royalties. And that was when we became a publishing company and from there it's just grown and grown and grown and like i said at the top we're working with my heroes now so that's been the journey and um we're now i think 120 plus books four languages and and everything that you said so it's it's gone a bit crazy but it's great so it's a really long answer actually no it's fantastic it's so fascinating though to see like this is what i love about this podcast is that you get to see all of these different routes that people have taken into the industry the thing that I love most, though, about what you said was talking about drilling down and focusing because I suffer so badly with like, oh, my God, all of right. the things. Let's do yeah. them all. Um, have you read the, a book called The One Thing? I've heard about it. People have mentioned it, but no. no yeah, well, very that. much in that ethos that you were talking mm. about in terms of just focus on one thing at a time. Yeah. Um, yeah, love it. I, I ought to take a leaf out of your book. <laughs> well, yeah, um, I think, I, I don't know, there's, there's other ways around that, though, because I think it, these days it's quite easy to build a team around you that can do these things for mm. you. Obviously, I think you have to have an understanding of stuff, but, you know, like freelancers at workplaces like that, actually, um, you can find people who can do these things without huge investment. Um, for example, I'm terrible at like Photoshop. So anything I do is going to be a waste of my time because it's not going to be as good as what I can pay somebody else to do. So there's that. I think the real issue with that sort of glittery object, everything in front of us, so much, so many things I can be focusing on is actually, it becomes really stressful because then the limiting factor becomes time. Mm. You know, I've only got so many hours in a day. I want to get my book up, but I've got to do this. this, this. And, and it's actually you just need to write a good book now. Like that's your job as a writer, editors, covers, cover designers, you know, marketing to an extent, 
that can be, you know, outsourced. And of course that stuff costs money and I'm totally aware that people are coming in, they're writing their first book and, and, and things, but it's, it's one of those, it's something I, I get asked quite a lot and I go, um, is, and you've got to take an approach. If you're going to self-publish, the really important word is there is, is publish, publisher, because you have to invest in your own work. If you wrote your manuscript center off to a publishing company, well, they're going to, of course, pay for your covers, editing, blah, 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 everything that goes towards it. But if you're not going to do that, if you're going to take that ownership, you have to take that ownership. And I, I think these days, the truth is that there needs to be a little bit of an investment. It doesn't have to be much, but you have to be willing and trust yourself and believe in yourself enough to actually you know, get at least your covers done in an edit. Absolutely. And when you do then invest that um, money in getting other people to do stuff for you, you free your time up to then produce more of the stuff that earns you money. I am on the brink, I would say, of having that time pressure and Corona lockdown has really showed that to me because Mm. it's just decimated my ability to do anything because you know you how can you when you have a six-year-old running around your feet all day long um but also I'm a massive control freak and so I just I know that I I reckon I'll get to the end of the year and just be like I can't do this anymore and going into 2021 I will have to outsource some stuff because it's just I can't um Right. We spoke previously about the fact that a rebellion brought you to indie publishing because you wanted to provide more value to your readers. And you sort of alluded to that a little bit um, earlier on. Mm. But can you let's just talk about the rebellion and what happened there and how you how you, you know, really ended up providing all of that value to your readers? Yeah, I've always loved education. And I think the more that you can give you know, if it's, you know, without sort of spreading people too thin, if you're going to one subject, the more you can offer them on that subject and the more value you can provide, the better, right? Because our, my job is to educate people in this case about guitar and music. And so when a publishing company goes, that's not financially viable because you're going to have to put three DVDs on the book and they get lost and they scratch and they're expensive to make and there's the margins and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, it's the, the time it's 21st century, you know what I mean? And like WordPress exists and I got told that KDP exists, kind of create space exists. So I said, well, well, fuck you. You know what I mean? It's just, no, no, there's no way that you can, you can sort of limit that. And I've thought about this since and, and a very slight digress, you know, talking about people go, Oh, I want to be published. I want to be traditionally published because that's, an, that's, that's a sign of quality. I, I don't think it is. It's a, it's, it's a sign of um, people thinking that your book is commercially viable enough for them to make money with it, which is, you know, it might be quality, but, you know, people's d- definition of quality goes from everything from Shorter to, to Dan Brown. No offense, Dan. But, you know what I mean? There's, there's that, that whole scale of if you like it, it's good. You know, and if you don't like it, it's shitty, but that's the same for everyone. So when you've got people going, oh no, I've got to be traditionally published because that's good. No, actually what being traditionally published is, and going back historically, is these are the people who've got access to a printing press and can get your, they, they've got the initial investment. And because they have all that, they get to decide what is culturally relevant or good, if you like it. So yeah, they, when, when I, they turn around and said, no, you're giving too much value. <laughs> it's just like, right, no, we're not doing that. So yeah, like at the beginning, everything that I, I did was 
you know, the, I'd say the books were good. I, you know, I was quite, quite pleased with the books and talking about outsourcing stuff. A lot of the reason I outsource stuff is because I'm really bad at loads of things. And I have to realize that before, you know, that little bit of control freak in me um, went because I was actually, you know what, I'm terrible at this. I, you know, or, or at least somebody else is better. So, um, so yeah, so I, I threw everything up on Amazon and, and then through that journey, and it's, it's certainly not like schadenfreude, however you pronounce that, but actually looking at what we're doing now, a few years down the line, compared to what that publishing company gave up because we were offering too much value. I think that's a really nice rebel moment because I'm sitting here and we're like doing like seven figures or whatever and they're sort of barely scraping on because they were telling me at the time like books are not commercially viable. So it was like, well, okay, let's let's see. And, um, you know, it, there, there was never a plan to, to kind of write so many books. But for me, like as, a, as somebody who was teaching guitar and as a musician, I was like, there was no pension. There was no like savings or anything like that. So I saw this first book kind of, um starting to sell so, okay well we'll just sort of keep that in the back pocket we won't use it and then it's a nice way of saving for the future and then by i think book like 12 i was like well let's go and live in thailand for a year because i don't need to like <laughs> work as a teacher anymore so um it, yeah that was that was my sort of first little rebel moment i think in the industry i love it i love a big fuck you to any like uh what's the word um authority yeah, <laughs> I, I i have a huge authority problem uh, um what is your structural setup so how do you a provide you sort of alluded to wordpress there but in, in more technical terms how do you provide that extra value to your readers and also i know that you make some of the things that you give to readers integral to the book so just talk about how you ensure that readers mm. keep coming back to you using those methods yeah. Okay. I think it's really important to say at the core of everything, it's got to be a good book. And, you know, hopefully that won't sound arrogant. Like I've got editors and we're working with great musicians, but like you have to have a good thing that, and I think forget everything else. Your, your best source of marketing is to write a good book, you know, because if people like it, they will buy the next one. I think that's very important. Then, the, I think one little story I remember, I, I, I really wanted this book called Artful Arpeggios um, when I was about 17 because I was cool like that. And um, I sent it away and it, came, it was really expensive. It was like $30 and it turned up and it was about like 24 pages long or something like that. And I was like, this is rubbish. And it always stayed in there. Like, you know, it was, it was, it was a useful book. Don't get me wrong, but um, it it, it always stuck with me. So our books, we we take, and this is one of the reasons why I've managed to do so many, is we take a really small, tiny little like subject area. We don't have like a book on guitar. We have a book on blues guitar rhythm playing and blues guitar lead and you know all, all that kind of thing. And we just go to town on it, like everything that is relevant. And we'll take a student on a journey from where they are now to where they want to be and they can get everything from that. So the next thing is the books a journey. And as you said, the big sort of sort of um, ecosystem thing is that every single one of those notated examples, there's normally between hundred to 150 like actual bits of playing exercises, bits of music in a book 
they are recorded as audio by the writer um, and they're available on our website. So you get the book, you download it and you want the audio because it's an integral part of the, the book and you go, you sign up and you tell us which book you bought and your name and give us your email. And when we know which book you've bought in the background, we use a big thing called Active Campaign, which is horrible. Don't really recommend it. Um, go with MailerLite. Whenever I've had to set up things for other people when I've been consulting, we'll sort of push them in the MailerLite type direction. But Active Campaign then sorts them into, they tag them by their genre. So if you've bought Blues book, you just get tagged Blues and Rock Jazz, essentially like that. And we know what book they've bought. From that point, they get a little welcome series of emails saying, hey, I'm Joseph, this is what we're doing. And they can download their audio, of course. And from there, they go into a big automated series of emails, which every sort of week will drip feed them a new book. And it's not loads and loads of sales, but because you know there's all these different sort of pathways that they can go down depending on what they do. But essentially, they'll get a book that is relevant to what they're interested in and their ability level each week and we have a lot of books so yeah that that's how how we do that and it was not again everything with me really it was never a particular marketing plan to start out it's just like well we're writing music books they, they should come with the music so you can hear what you're doing and it was a couple of years actually before I put that stuff behind an email wall. So, you know, um, missed out on some early emails there, but once we did, yeah, it's, it's crazy. We keep that really clean, that list. Um, I'm always deleting anyone who's inactive, but still with, um, I think I deleted about 10,000 people a few weeks ago, but we've got over 70,000 people there. Of course, you know, like if those, uh, without getting too technical, we'll obviously build a Facebook lookalike list from those, anybody we were deleting and, and then that sort mm. of stuff as well. So um, yeah, like that, that's how we've done it. We've got this huge sort of targeting thing. And of course, whenever we release a new book now, we've got a very targeted defined audience that we can launch that to, um, which means often more often than not, if we're launching a guitar book, it'll go to number one on Amazon. If for guitar. I should say but you know for us like we've had books in the top 2000 kind of thing which is a, like, really crazy because if you think about how many books there are and how few guitarists there, there would be buying books that's actually the, that's that's a massive success for us so we're really happy about it so that sort of answer the kind of question yeah guess? absolutely I think I love so many things about that. Well, number one, um, I don't really pay attention to rankings because like, are you earning enough to do this and live your dream? That's what counts. Like who cares how much, you know, what rank you are. Um, Also because that's only relevant to Amazon anyway and not all of the other stores. But um, yeah, I also love um, that you spoke about your automation sequence and how and also how integral or how important it is to have a back catalogue so that you can introduce your readers to other things. Um, and also MailerLite. I am so in need of moving to MailerLite. I'm with MailChimp and it's just so expensive now for like, anyway, that's a whole tangent. I, it's on my plan to move this month. Yeah. Um, but also yeah. learning something new. <laughs> I'm just it's, dreading. It's, you know what? It, it's, it's the same, but easier. Okay. <laughs> um, 
Right. Let's talk about the fact that you are absolutely killing it with paperbacks. Of course, you are writing nonfiction and that does tend to help with paperback sales. But can you tell us a little bit about how you've grown your, your paperback sales? Yeah, no. So like, I've got nothing on that. We, I would love to be like, yeah, the secret of selling paperbacks is this. But you're right, you nailed it in the question. I think it, I, I think my feeling after sort of 10 years of doing this is it's just a non-fiction thing. Mm. You know, like a chapter from friends like, you know, Mark and Mark Dawson, LJ Ross and guys like that. And they're very, very heavily, most, most authors are very, very heavily digital. Mm. Um, but, you know, I, th I think it's a, it's a music stand thing. We, you know, people want to have a book in front of them that they can put on their music stand. Um, I would love to think, but this is probably just me projecting here, that people want to get away from the digital thing a bit while they're learning music. Um, maybe not, you know, so people still learn from YouTube and videos and, and things like that. But actually, when I practice, if I practice when I get time, is, <laughs> uh, um, is that I really, it's, for me, it's a big process of disconnection um from from everything digital it'll be like me a metronome and a book and if i've only got that book on the computer i print it out and it it, it goes on the music stand and it's you know it's normally an early morning thing for me so it'd be that and a metronome and i'm, I'm good to go so i i can't really offer you any insights into that i just think we're lucky and um I think nonfiction supports that. It's interesting to see, though, that Mark and Louise, they, they, they've definitely got strategy for, you know, being in shops and, and things like that. Now, um, one of the big issues, challenges of indie has always been distribution to mainstream. Mm. But I think there are big inroads, certainly if your name's big enough to, to actually get there. So I think we're actually chipping away at that sort of mountain now and those walls are really coming down if i mean hopefully the the trad industry has had a bit of a wake-up call from you know from the, the absolute revolution in the last sort of five to ten years but when distribution gets more accessible and i'm talking you know offset print runs and into Waterstones or, you know, Borders or whatever, that's going to be a massive, massive game changer. And, um, yeah, that, that's going to be really interesting. I think we're on the cusp of it. You know, we can see that sort of stuff and happening. And, you know, you sort of see print-on-demand machines kicking up in certain bookshops and things. So you can order anything by ISBN. If I can give some constructive advice, you've got to be on, uh, we use uh, Lightning Source for Ingram Spark, you know, getting into those things. Because I think, say for us on, 99.9% of what we do is, is print on demand. We do have some offset stuff, particularly in Brazil and, and for dedicated music shops. But places like Ingram, if you're on their catalogue, you are essentially in Gardeners and Waterstones can basically order from you so you you know if you're just if you're not publishing a paperback or if you're just using amazon kdp paperback get yourself into ingram spark it's really really important and i think i don't know within the next two to three years i think there might be some changes in the industry but that's my feeling 
Yeah, I completely agree. My nonfiction, probably a third of my nonfiction sales are paperback, but I think it is literally just because it's nonfiction, whereas my fiction, like 99% ebook. Yeah. (laughs) You know, Um, but yeah, also I love Ingram Spark. They're amazing. So I completely concur with that Mm. advice. Um, Okay, what's the biggest lesson, like business lesson you've learned um, on your journey so far? Yeah, I hate giving really, really boring answers, but my God, get the fucking paperwork done. Like, get the stuff in place. It's such a dull answer, but if you're working with anyone, if you're co-writing, if you've got a publishing agreement, translation agreement, whatever you're doing, get it in writing because when stuff goes sideways, it really does go sideways, like, big time. So, you know, we're, we're... we're talking with authors and, and we know we're going to sell a lot of their books so that, you know, they will have early access to our contract. Even if we're not signed, like we try to work very much on trust. Right. And that means I will give them obviously the contract with the terms that we've agreed. Um, as I say, a publishing thing um, really early, but I'll say, listen, let's not sign that until we're over the line with this. You've handed over your manuscript and we have started our editing process. Because at this point, the worst that can happen is that you hate working with us or this turns into a nightmare for everyone and you can walk away. When that contract's signed before getting into, you know, let's see your writing kind of thing, then, then everyone's committed. I mean, we can always tear up a contract, but you know, you get the point is sort of, you, we don't commit until we're ready to sort of do our side of that. And, that, and that's really for the author as well. They don't, they don't want to be tied to us. So yeah, it, it really is that. And, and as you start getting bigger as an author, you really need to, you know, when you're attracting people to you, you know, and you sort of get a bigger profile and people are approaching you, they expect that. Mm. you know you ex- they expect to see a contract you imagine going up to like harper collins they're like oh yeah hang on that's great thanks we're really flattered you want to work with us um we don't really have a contract but do you want to it's like no like you just like bye so so all of that stuff is really important um so that's the probably the most formal answer the other kind of thing that occurred to me while is is that you need to it's, it's such a subjective thing, but you need to have a good vibe about people that you're working with. Every single time I've had a slight doubt about something or just that little feeling in your stomach, you know, this doesn't feel quite right. It's always gone wrong. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I've got particularly great intuition or anything like that. It's not like I'm Spider-Man, but it's, um, I might be. I can't know if I can <laughs> I. But, but that sort of... Um, thing where you're just like you know what this guy just feels a little bit weird or she's like this. and and in that if that's happening on the first meeting i'd be very very careful and the team that i've i'm very lucky to have around me it's chilled it's a good vibe and yeah like we i, I i'm not going to mention any names but i have certainly turned down the opportunity to work with quite a big name person who i just felt it had the potential for things to get litigious, litigious, um, further down the line because they were, even before they submitted anything, they were asking for 
um, changes to contracts and, you know, the lawyers were sort of involved before anything had happened. That's just like, you know what, this is probably all fine. And I respect that and expect you want, I respect that you want to do that. But we've, we've used the same contract for loads and loads of people. And at this point, I'm not going to start hiring more lawyers to, to look at our contracts just to accommodate you. So this is the, this is the deal. It's fine. It's fair. We all know what we're signing up for, but if you're really going to start picking up that right away, then we're, we're just going to step and it wasn't, you know, like we're out to trick anyone. We just, we just know our deals are good and our contracts are fine. So yeah, things like that would just be a vibe. But I think the thing is for me, if, if I'm publishing something, essentially I'm making almost like a lifelong commitment to that person to keep paying them royalties. And actually I just don't want that little thorn in, in my side. I used to fire my guitar students particularly it was like something about like you know 16 year old lads so like my like without the sub story like my parents split when I was really young we had very very little growing up but yeah my mum worked her ass off to put me through guitar lessons and you get you, you I'd always know and then it'd be like three lessons in and they weren't practicing and I had and partly for me like I hated doing the same lesson week after week after week and you know you try and inspire them as much as you can but at the end of the day if they can't be bothered practicing like so I'd, I'd say listen this is your last week I'm going to, you go, you practice. And if you don't, I'm going to be talking to your parents because this isn't school. I don't have to teach you. I've got a waiting list. And they were like, totally like freaked out by that. It's like, this is my job. Did that, did that kick any of them up the bat? Did they like, yeah, did some of them? Yeah, a few of them got their shit together and a few of them, I was like, oh, listen, you, this, that was your last warning. Um, and so I spoke to them and I was like, this isn't, you know, it, it was partly the fact I wasn't enjoying teaching them because they weren't working, but also it's such a massive waste of their parents' money mm. and time because they were driving them to my house to have a guitar lesson. And your time. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I was getting paid, but I prefer to be getting paid for someone where I was enjoying teaching them and they were enthusiastic and came back. You didn't have to like, get it and stuff's difficult and you're going to have the odd week where you've not made progress but that's because sometimes things are hard but mm. you know, there was just a sort of pattern of behavior in, in some people where it's just like well, you're not working i'm not prepared to teach you and they're like what it's not school mate <laughs> I, have to I love that i love that so much yeah. <laughs> um okay we you, you alluded to this a little bit but you have started recently another business in translation would you like to tell everyone a little bit more about where that came from and about the service? Yeah, um, a few, like it's, Germany's huge, I think is the absolute, the bottom line, it's getting, get, get, getting to right to the issue. A few years ago, I thought, well, okay, we're doing all right. Is it going to be easier for me to, to write another book or is it going to be easier for me to like try and market that book in another language? And of course, you know, rights deals and things like that. But me being me, maybe that's a rebel thing. I was like, well, I'm just going to get this translated myself. I, you know, I knew people who were German and they were musicians. So, um, and, and through Upwork and, and whatever, and managed to hire some great translators. And those books really did really well. When that happened, I got really busy. Like the company was growing so fast and I was kind of didn't just have the headspace to, to do the others. But I came back to it last year and we translated, I think, 65 or 70 books into German within six months. So I hired a whole team of translators and I was like, yes, of course it was an investment, but I, I got the track record. And... Um, very, very slight digression on, on the financial side of that. Yes, it's a lot of money, but when you break that down per book um, and you sort of 
even if something's going to make like a hundred pounds a month, but if it's going to do it for 40 years, that's like quarter of a million quid. Right. So you kind of, when you start like justifying things in that way, you go, okay, I'm not just investing this right now. I'm investing for the rest of that book's life. Mm. You know what I mean? So, um, Oh, sorry. No, it's like forty-eight thousand pounds or whatever it is. But then you sort of chunk that up by hundred books or whatever. Then, then like you sort of getting it's going a bit crazy. Um, so, yeah, like so we could see the return from the early trials we did, and, and we thought, well, let, well let's do it. Um, and we tried using DeepL to do it, and then getting an editor, and that turned into. So sorry, let's just what, yes, what yes. is DeepL for those that might not L know? Is an, AI translation tool that's really, really good, um, but it wasn't good for us because the, the amount of musical terms in there, and it just comes out with a very oddly phrased formal thing. And so the plan was like depel everything and then get editors in, but actually we've had to have subsequent layer, layer, layers of edits, which has been great because it's been a learning experience. So uh, getting back to the point is we, we got all our books done, and they start selling really well on Germany, Amazon Germany D, to the point where like, I sort of went through the numbers and, and spent a few days on it. So if we've got the English version of the book and the German version of the book, the German version of the book was selling, outselling the English version by I think about 400%, so it's about four to What? Yeah, right, and we're still talking about <laughs> Marburg. Right? Yeah, a lot of in one that. country in one language yeah exactly yeah so it's been massive um also amazon adverts available for all ad authors now in amazon germany um we're certainly finding amazon adverts in germany a lot cheaper well you know not a lot cheaper but like our a cost you know one one of the things that makes people kind of want to stab me in the neck is that our that's a bit graphic some of the people angry with me is that our a cost for um for um for our books is about 10% in, in 10 to 11% because we're non-fiction. So, um, but yeah, they're about 7% in Germany for mm -hmm. Germans. I think there's quite a few reasons for that. I, with, you know, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole here, but I think, you know, most people who self-publish, self-publish in English, most books are in English. Of course there are German books, but actually I think particularly for non-fiction, um, but probably for everything, people like to read things in their own language. You know, um, you know, it doesn't matter how good my second language Spanish is, for example, I'm probably still going to want to learn most things in English. So I can empathize with that. So I think that's, we're on a bit of a, a, a crest of a new wave and we've sort of swam out to meet that. And, you, you know, seeing again, like Mark Dawson posting about his numbers, I think at the time he'd had about sort of six or seven of his books on, um translated and he was saying he was turning over 750 dollars a day on an ad spend of a hundred dollars now that's serious money like that's that's really huge and it's all very well to go well that's mark but he had no real audience in germany at that point and he built it from scratch whole new territory whole new language did it right and he's done really well and, and you know it's great to see you know lovely people doing really well but this is the thing. So I think there are going to be more um, German books. It's growing. It's growing market, particularly more German language books, I should say. And so with seeing all this stuff happening, and I've built this amazing translation team around me. I'm like, well, 
I'm kind of running out of books of my own to do, why don't I make that awesome team available to other people? So yeah, won't lie, of course it's a business, um, but at the same time, we are pricing it low because um, we're actually trying to do something for indie authors as well. So there's a very genuine like service that we're trying to provide. Getting books translated is always going to be expensive, but I think the the compromise people have always had to make is, well, I can't afford to do this, so I'm going to have to license my translation rate uh, rights and make literally pennies, you know, on on a book that's being sold. You know, you get your sort of um, what's it like your advance on royalties and, and everything, but it's always tiny for for, for you know smaller authors or these translation costs are so sky high, I, you know, I can't afford them. Um, and it's a big risk. So what we're trying to do is just find like a nice place where we translate uh, the work. It is more inexpensive and um, the author gets to keep their rights. Because if you had 20 books and you, you could write 20 more books, which is really hard, or you could just license them or, you know, translate them into another country. You've doubled your intellectual property for the rest of your life. And at the moment, those things are quite easy to market. So actually, I, we, you know, it's a chance to make your name in another country as well. It's a whole new, was it 60, 70, 80 million people? I can't remember in Germany, the whole new market is certainly bigger than the UK. Mm. And, and, uh, and of which in a country where reading is, extremely popular far more popular than in the uk absolutely um and so yeah already we, we've worked with a few people who are a couple of big names i won't name here just because of you know confidentiality confidentiality and, and stuff like that um oh actually i can't because somebody went mentioned it public but we've just done jd kirk's you know uh, new book as well which was great and and we're working with some other people as well so so yeah it's going really well oh and yeah David Penny as well. We've done one of his books and we're, we're doing a second at the moment. We're about to start on his third. So like, there's, there's a few people there that are, that are doing really well. Um, so when is the right time for an author to consider translations? Because obviously if you've only got one book or you're a brand new author, it's probably better to spend your money. Well, I'm assuming it's better yeah. to spend your money on, a, on the covers and editing of a second book. So yeah, yeah when, is, when, when should one think about this? That's a really um, good question. It's a, it's, I think that's going to depend on many things i think potentially the, the success of your first book i mean if you've just sort of you know sold a million copies of your first book you know not very nobody really gets to do that but you know then i would say that that's a good time to do it but yeah for most people you are going to want a a catalog and it's the same you know cross-selling on amazon or that kind of thing people who read book one like you'll get the read through into book two so that makes your advertising much more efficient I couldn't give you a number, but I would say, you know, if you've got six or seven, and I suppose it depends on genre as well and book length and all that kind of stuff. But I would say certainly you, you, if it's in a series, you know, four, five, six, something, something like that, it, it's, it's hard to say really. Um, but certainly more than one. And if people came to me with just like, yeah, I've got one book and I'm like, this isn't for you because um, our rates at the moment cost just under four thousand pounds, I think, to translate a sixty thousand word book. 
yeah and you're right if if you just gave me one book in english in a four thousand pound marketing budget i would spend that i wouldn't be spending a lot on german translations put it that mm. way there's a lot you can do with that money i think maybe a better gauge is when uh, like are you seeing success are you seeing continued sales are you seeing a market are you making more money than you're spending on your books at this point and if you have got a business there um then i would see it not as an expense but as an investment you know in, into your 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 money your 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 author business if you've got money left over in the bank at the end of each year and it's sort of accruing then yeah that's good but um yeah so it's it's just such a subjective wide kind of question it's difficult to give you an actual number but yeah i mean it, it is a really sound really sound marketing like uh reason to do it absolutely okay this is my favorite question this is the rebel author podcast so tell us about a time you unleashed your inner rebel well, yeah, you asked me, we were thinking about this and I had to sort of discuss with my fiance about this and, and so many of the things that I've, I've, I've done have been either like X-rated or massively illegal and <laughs> um, I'm kind of being careful what I say, but I, I thought of this one because it's quite funny. Look, I, I, can I tell you two quick ones? Of course. A really quick one. The first one's kind of a book one as well, so it sort of ties in. Um, I used to work on cruise ships and I worked in shore excursions and we used to sell tours to American people generally on, on, on tours. Um, I had a girlfriend there. Our contracts ended. We ended up on different ships. So when it came to the end of my contract, I said, can I be placed on this ship? And there was no real, I knew there was an opening. There was no real reason for me not to be placed on that ship. And they said no. So I was like, well, so and they wanted to pl place me on the worst ship in in the fleet it was, it was an all right it's party ship but um it was kind of not where i wanted to be it was a bit of a step backwards i don't know who i'd upset but probably someone and they, it was like the punishment ship kind of thing so yeah um i decided to let them employ me you know like give offer me another contract and i didn't not accept the contract but what i did is, and this is really really naughty was that i had all their numbers like for how much money they were making on each tour their like mo how they used to use a little bit of fear to say oh well you know the bahamas is normally safe but you know you should probably really be on a tour to like sell all this stuff and i wrote an ebook and i published it <laughs> with all of these numbers in and i put it up on a website so I, what two things happened, like very, very, cause I, I was stupidly like trying to promote it on a, on a website uh, called Cruise Critic, which is actually owned by the cruise company. Should have seen that. <laughs> so they saw that very, very quickly. I got this massive like fuck off cease and desist letter, like take the website down. You like about seven or eight things. And I was like, oh my God. Cause as you know, I was like younger and that. And, and they did that. And then the next thing I was out in the pub that day, kind of just like going, right. Um, you know, a bit worried about it. And I got a phone call from my manager and they fired me over the phone for doing that. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I was not, I was never going to get on that plane to go back, but that was one. So that was, that was quite a funny one that involved a book and, 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 <laughs> and the threat Love of like, national lawyers. <laughs> and, yeah. Okay. So um, that was one. And very, the second one I got, into a huge amount of shit in Thailand for trying to leave a party, right? My, re my rebel act was to leave a party. <laughs> okay, so we'd been up in Chiang Mai and we'd met this, these 
guys in the bar. One, I won't, actually won't mention his name, but he 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 was like king, like dude around there. He was obviously loaded, and um, he was just he was spending his wife's money. He told us the whole story about it. But he got divorced. He got a really good settlement. He was out there, and he was being treated like a rock star. So we were in all these bars in Chiang Mai, and we ended up going to like all these different places, like these really exclusive places, like restaurants and things like that. We went to like this super exclusive like nightclub and we were and ended up being in the vip area with the head of the police force in chiang mai and the current uh, muay thai kickboxing like champion as well it's like basically going for a drink with like ronaldo or something (laughs) just like full-on like partying at massive row style um, and then we go out afterwards. And at that time there was a curfew and you weren't really supposed to be out, but we were out on the street having this massive fish fry, drinking and all the things that go on there. And we're drinking with like the head of the, like the secret police and all this kind of stuff. It was crazy. And so it got to about like two o'clock in the morning, it'd been an amazing day, amazing night. And um, I was like, I had a flight back down to Bangkok early in the morning. So I was like, listen, man, this is, and I was there with my friend Lorna, who we were like traveling with. So listen, this has been awesome. Like, thank you so much. Like, I've got to go. Cool. Stay in touch kind of thing. He was like, no. I'm like, what do you mean? No, he said, you're not leaving. That would be very, you'd be, you know, like spitting in the face of my hospitality kind of thing. You stay here until I say you can go. And we're sitting there and there's like all these police everywhere. And I'm like, oh shit. So, oh, and he, he told us the reason we were able to like drink outside is because he put like a really nice bottle of scotch in the policeman's car or whatever and all this sort of stuff. So we're there and like, oh God, so we like kind of got a bit uncomfortable from that point, but like party's going. Um, and so about eight, like my friend's getting really worried at this point, about an hour later, so listen, um, sped to this guy and I'm like, listen, I'm going to take my friend home, but I'm going to come straight back. Obviously no intention of returning. So he's like, okay, but make sure, like, I know where you're staying. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay. So like, we, we sort of walk and we're down this alley and we just hear this guy's American. He's like, you cannot do this. And like, we're like, oh shit. And he's like, followed us. And we turn around and there's this guy and he had a gun and he's pointing this gun at me, right? Saying, you are not leaving this party. Like, you're going to stay here. And I'm like, shit. I'm like, I'm just walking my friend home. I'm coming back. And I, I don't remember what I said. No idea. But he said, like, you better come back. If you don't come back, I'm going to find you in the morning. I'm going to do all this sort of stuff. And I was like, okay, I'll come back, come back. Obviously, no intention. So we managed to talk our way out of it but like full on like that was the first time in my life I've had a gun in my face it was horrible um get back to the hotel and and just yeah that was I phoned my girlfriend back in England and like <laughs> it was like the 70 or 80 pound phone call <laughs> yeah so yeah that was my little rebel act is to leave a party uh uninvited <laughs> That is crazy. Like, what were they going to do? Not allow you to get on the plane? Like, yeah, I don't know. He was, like, he was like suggesting he was going to hunt us down, wait at the airport, and like all the police would be there. Because like we were properly drinking with all like the police force, and it was oh man, that is mad. It's a great night. It's a good day, but like, <laughs> yeah, slightly sour ending. <laughs> yeah, to the edge. Of yeah. Good story though. Yeah. <laughs> um, Tell listeners where they can find out more about you, your translation company, and your books. 
Uh, yeah, translation company is easy. That's www.translatebooks.com. Um, like all our pricings on, on there and everything like that. And uh, if it's cool, for, I don't know if you can do it for the podcast. I can give you a link to like, I've got this big PDF book about like the best ways to market your book mm-hmm. in Germany right now as well so I'll, I'll get you a link to that if that's cool that'd be amazing um, yeah um, for the guitar stuff the musicians out there um, then that is fundamental hyphen changes dot com so um, yeah or just search Joseph Alexander guitar on Amazon and you'll get through to us um, but yeah that's it and I will include links to all of those lovely uh, places in the show notes. So thank you very much to Joseph Alexander for being a wonderful guest today. And thank you to all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. Thank you very much also to all of you lovely listeners. I'm Sasha Black, you are listening to Joseph Alexander, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, I'll be talking to Steve Brown, and we have a deeply fascinating conversation about your author websites, branding, marketing, business in general, and the things that you might be doing wrong with your author website. So join me next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review. Oh,